So my name is Brett Schaefer, and I'm a fellow for media and digital disinformation at the Alliance for Securing Democracy. Hi, listeners. We hope you enjoyed our last episode that gave you access to the complete interview with Miriam Matthews. Today, we're going to go back to the full interview with Brett Schaefer. Yes, Brett Schaefer, who we talked to for episode six. Join me, Eva von Schaefer, and my colleague, Daiva Rebichkaita, as we comb through research to find out what you can do and what our governments can do to stop the spread of disinformation. Because we believe that knowing about disinformation is the only way to protect ourselves against it. We believe this is one of the most important fights of the future because so much is at stake. We just want to take a minute to welcome our new listeners. Hello, and thank you for your interest. If you like our show, please tell your families, your coworkers, and your neighbors. That's right. If you know of someone who might enjoy the show, just pick up your phone, you know it's right next to you somewhere, and text them the link right now. That's right. We really need your help to get the word out about our show. Okay, so let's jump right into the interview. I was interested in knowing more about Brett's work. My sort of primary uh, mission is to track and expose uh, Russian, Chinese, and Iranian uh, information operations on social media. So we are consistently tracking the messaging coming out of official sources. So this would be state media, diplomats, government officials, but as well as, well as uh, more covert operations. So these would be the troll accounts, bot accounts, any sort of state-affiliated actor pushing messaging into Western democracies. What else did you talk about? So then I asked him if he had seen a rise in this kind of messaging, or had it just shifted to COVID and COVID vaccines? Well, I would say there's there's been clearly, I mean, a shift in terms of narrative focus, but there have also been, particularly uh, in the case of Russia, some specific accounts that have been created to message around the vaccine. So in particular, their Sputnik vaccine Twitter account has seen sort of a meteoric rise in terms of its followers and influence. Um, you know, we, we track all of the accounts uh, on Twitter that are affiliated with the Russian state. That one account by far has seen the most growth over the last year of any of the Russian uh, Twitter accounts that we follow. So just generally speaking, all of their messengers have shifted towards messaging around the vaccine, promoting the Sputnik vaccine, but they have also created these specific uh, information channels to talk about not only their own vaccine, but also to denigrate Western vaccines. What did Brett mean when he talked about information channels? What is that exactly? Let's listen in. So Russia in particular has sort of many tentacles of their information apparatus. So they, of course, have state media television channels, most notably RT, which is available in many different languages around the world. Uh, then they have a wide array of news and information websites, including their, their Sputnik sites, which is not actually related to their Sputnik vaccine. The Sputnik sort of website brand came first. And then, of course, they have their sort of wide social media influence. So some of these are clear, attributable accounts. I mean, you know, we know when Russian government officials or diplomats or state media accounts are tweeting. But of course, anyone who's followed this sort of information around uh, the U.S. political scene over the last four or five years also knows about Russian trolling operations. So the Internet Research Agency, other sort of Russian intelligence operations run through military intelligence. So there's sort of many different information channels, some 
clear, some less clear uh, that they used to, to sort of talk about many topics, but vaccines and COVID being the most prominent one over the last year. I was interested in knowing if all of this is coordinated, and if so, how is the coordination done? It's a, it's a good question, one where there's maybe not an entirely clear answer, at least from the outside. I mean, we know Russia controls its information more um, than obviously we think of in sort of a, a Western context. Uh, but that said, there's a lot of freedom to run uh, within the lanes that they create. So when we look at what's coming out of RT or Sputnik, it's not as if there's someone sitting in the Kremlin who's sending out a memo every day of what to publish, you know, to sort of they kind of understand uh, the party line, for lack of a better term and are given sort of a pretty wide area to experiment and try things. So there is coordination in the sense that everyone knows that, yes, we are supposed to talk about Sputnik vaccine in a positive light, and we are supposed to speak negatively about Western vaccines. But I don't think there's it's getting down to the sort of talking point level. And then when you talk about the more sort of covert and gray area operations, that gets a, a little more muddy, uh, intentionally so. So when we have seen the sort of more aggressive disinformation campaigns that have been run through these sort of fringy sites where the connections back to the Russian state are a little bit more tenuous, it's it's not entirely clear uh, the extent to which, again, that there is direct awareness of some someone who's a government official saying we should have this site in Ukraine tell a story about uh, four Ukrainian soldiers who died after receiving American vaccines or whether it's just we're going to fund these operations and kind of let them run wild and do their thing, knowing that we're getting to the point we want to get to, but there's not sort of direct control uh, over every message that they put out. So can we track these narratives from point zero to stories in mainstream media? There's a degree to which we can track the popularity of those messages using just sort of basic social media indicators, engagement rates and views and that kind of thing. It's always challenging to figure out when they are piggybacking off of narratives that already exist domestically and they're just kind of amplifying them, stirring the pot, or whether they are driving specific narratives into the domestic information space. I, I think sometimes it's a two-way street. Largely what we've seen them do around vaccines, though, it, it's not as if they are pushing out anti-vax messaging per se. And it's not as if they are pushing out disinformation. If you're looking at disinformation using the sort of very specific term of what disinformation is, more of what we've seen is what we categorize as malinformation. So they're taking true bits of evidence, uh, but presenting them in a way that it is wildly misleading. So I think the best example is, you know, when you're vaccinating millions of people around the world, There are things that happen. I mean, people get sick afterwards. Uh, people die afterwards for completely unrelated reasons. I mean, when you start by trying to vaccinate the elderly population, just it's a statistical inevitability that some of that population will die afterwards. And what RT has done has presented these cases in ways that, yes, I mean, these things happen, but it's a huge issue of, of removing context or taking things out of context. And then the big issue of causation versus correlation. So when you see a headline that blares, you know, seven nursing home residents die, you know, usually in all caps in Spain after receiving the Pfizer vaccine, that leads the reader to believe that there is a connection there. 
if you read the entire story, RT usually does provide the caveats that, well, like these probably aren't related, but we know the way information works now. And most people who see the headline aren't going to read the story. Most people who see the tweet aren't going to read the story. So what we've seen is just this sort of cobbling together um, selective bits of information to create a narrative that is damaging towards Western vaccines. And then I wanted to know what Brent meant when he said cobbling together bits of information. And malinformation is in some ways the most difficult to deal with because it exists technically in this sort of world of truth, or at least a sort of gray area of truth. And this is honestly, this is, this is what we see with our own partisan news outlets, right? I mean, for the most part, they are not making up stories. There's just this intense sort of selection bias of the stories they cover uh, to create this view of the world that they want to pass along to their audience or that their audience is looking for. But the problem with this malinformation is when it is technically true, most of our measures to try to mitigate the effects of, of falsehoods are, are based on trying to highlight lies. So if you talk about fact checkers, or labeling and all of these things that the social media companies have tried to do, it's, it's hard to fact check and label a tweet that it's sort of technically true, uh, but you really need context there. And context takes a lot of explanation and it's hard to get across to people. So it's a way of kind of staying on the right side of content moderation uh, and of fact checking, while at the same time, misleading an audience. So it's just as damaging. And in fact, more damaging because they have the defense to say, well, these things happen. Where are we lying? You know, we're just covering the truth. And people who are telling you that, you know, RT is trying to mislead you, we're actually giving you the facts that the Western media is not covering. Did Brett say he thought this was dangerous for democracy? Is there any way to measure the impact? It's a view... I share, but I think you can look at, and this gets somewhat anecdotal, but you can look at the certain cause and effect to a degree of just sort of public opinion pulling around things um, where you can start seeing at least collectively, not necessarily saying it's just the Russians who are responsible for our information problem. But when you look at vaccine hesitancy, uh, and you look at how that has grown, I think it is hard to to look at that issue and not see the problem of social media and information on social media as being a significant part of the problem. So again, I wouldn't be able to say that, you know, what Russia and China are doing have contributed to the problems here. There are many, many, many domestic actors who have a huge uh, following, who have a ton of influence, who have contributed but I think collectively, you can say just, you know, again, looking specifically at the vaccine issue, vaccine skepticism has grown exponentially uh, right along with the sort of growth of social media. And again, this predates COVID vaccines to go to the sort of entire anti-vax movement. And public health in general, I, I think, has really been damaged by, you know, many of the tactics that we have seen on social media and the fact that when parents are at home and have an issue now with their kids, the first thing they're doing is probably Googling it. And you probably are not having to go too far through a Google search before you're going to find some misleading information. 
And I think, you know, that is clearly really problematic from a public health standpoint. And then to your point of what does this do to democracy? I mean, you know, we saw the, the Capitol riots. We've seen all of these instances around the world where there is just a key information component uh, that is part of it. And, you know, I think if, if different groups of people are living in different information realities, that makes it really hard to have a functioning democracy. The basis of democracy is sort of understanding the facts, seeing two sides of a debate and making at least a semi-informed decision uh, based on the facts and the reality on the ground. But if we're just living in many different realities, that that starts to erode democracy from within. So I don't think it is an understatement to say that it's sort of fundamental to the health of democracy is getting a better sort of grip on what is happening in the information space. So if we then look at more traditional anti-vaccine base, let's say those that are anti-childhood vaccination, I wanted to know if there was a confluence between these two groups, that is people like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and the Russian trolls. Is there any way that they feed off each other? There is limited evidence of there being sort of direct amplification of what we would consider to be sort of pure anti-vax messaging. And there have been a couple of reports that came out looking back at the sort of entire corpus of Russian troll messaging to show that there have been some, you know, some clear amplification of some of those anti-vax messaging. Again, this all predates COVID. I would caution a little bit there in some ways you can kind of find evidence of everything. Uh, if you look at sort of the 15 million tweets that have come out of the Russian trolling operation. What I will say is that I think broadly, RT and Sputnik have a bit of a home uh, with anti-vaxxers because they have this view of the world that everything should be uh, looked at with suspicion. I mean, RT's motto is question more. It's essentially saying, you know, the mainstream media, government, it can't be trusted. Uh, you should be looking for alternative news sources. So while you don't typically see an RT or a Sputnik putting out an article that you would consider to exist in like the, the sort of anti-vax world, what you do see them do is, is sort of building this worldview that tells people that there is sort of a government media agenda that gets you to do things. And you need to sort of seek out these alternative news sources, these alternative information op options that I think sort of all it all feeds into one another. And we see this around 5G, where there's been very sort of explicit efforts by RT to push these sort of health concerns around 5G, where we have seen anti-vax communities really latch onto that as well at times and share those stories. So there's, there's definitely some uh, exchange there. Why is it that so much of the sentiment, at least in the United States, is directed against the Pfizer vaccine? It's an interesting question, and it's something that we, until we really dug into the data, weren't necessarily seeing, because we, we kind of lumped them all together, that there's an effort to, to denigrate Western vaccines sort of writ large. But we, we did find that it clearly Pfizer is the number one target. Um, why it has been targeted more than Moderna, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think we, you can guess that you know Pfizer was first out of the gate. So maybe it was seen as the initial major competition. Pfizer is a pretty globally recognized brand, so it's made it a little bit easier for them to run um, sort of some of the 
anti-big pharma, anti-American kind of messaging, particularly targeting audiences in the global south, because people recognize that Pfizer is an American company, even though obviously the, the Pfizer vaccine was created also with a, a German company as well. But what's interesting is, is the messaging around AstraZeneca, because AstraZeneca initially was very much in the crosshairs of Russian messaging. And then late November, AstraZeneca and the Sputnik vaccine sort of combined forces. And all of a sudden, you saw a drop off in the negative pieces uh, targeting AstraZeneca. In fact, a lot of positive messaging. There's clearly these geopolitical and in some cases, probably economic goals that are the reason why certain vaccines are being targeted and others are not. It's not just that, well, they kind of reflexively like to denigrate everything Western. Uh, it's been more strategic than that. So then I asked Brett what he meant by economic goals, if he could explain that to our listeners. Exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, Russia's endgame with this, I don't think, has been to create vaccine skepticism globally. That there's, there's no real win for them in doing that. And we've actually seen a lot of messaging probably backfire because vaccine skepticism is quite significant within Russia. They are a essentially a business competitor for the Western vaccines. And they're very much trying to target their vaccines to key countries in the global South. I mean, Mexico ha has been a major recipient of Sputnik, Argentina. So when you look at their goals here, some of it is just sort of this geopolitical one-upmanship, but there's also huge market opportunity here. And getting their vaccines into some of these countries that may also be looking at Pfizer or other European or American brands. I mean, again, that can be a big economic win, but it's, it's a huge diplomatic win as well. It gives them a lot of political leverage in these countries. If, you know, they're able to say we desperately need these vaccines and Russia is able to show up with 5 million doses. So there's, there's a lot at stake here that just goes beyond, you know, trying to, broadly hurt a Western competitor because they're American, they really see a, a win in it. And you look at a lot of their messaging around the countries in Europe that have imported the vaccines, so Hungary, uh, Serbia to a degree, and vaccine in places as a way of gaining leverage. We looked at Eastern European countries in previous episodes. Did Brad mention any of them? Yes, let's listen to the tape. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we have seen this all this messaging also target Europe largely by looking at the uh, supposed successes of Hungary and Serbia, who have been more willing to import Sputnik. So some of the charts that we have seen targeting European audiences essentially are saying, look, these countries are ahead of you in terms of percentage of the population who have received a vaccine. This is what happens when you, you know, drop the sort of political geopolitical Uh, theater and, and Port Sputnik and et cetera, et cetera. It, it allows this sort of alliance of pro-Kremlin countries to gain a little bit of strength and maybe appeal, particularly in some of the European countries that have struggled uh, with the rollout of vaccination. So there's uh, across the globe, it's not sort of a one size fits all. I think they have used the fact that they have a vaccine to offer as a way of really gaining a lot of diplomatic leverage in places, or at least sort of a, a leverage leverage in the information space of being able to say that, you know, 
you're struggling because the U.S. has pressured, you know, X and Y country not to import it. If you just accepted Sputnik, you'd be in a better place right now. And Brett told us that misinformation is so difficult to counter. But what can governments do and what can I do? So I just had a friend come up to me this morning and say she was really hesitant about getting the vaccine because nobody knows what's in it. So how can I counter arguments like that? Right. I have heard the the exact same thing. And I think at least, you know, I'm sitting in the sort of U.S. context, like there, there have been real efforts to uh, recruit messengers to try to present the vaccine as being safe to different communities. But I think those efforts need to be increased tenfold, because if you look at the sort of percentages of people who are skeptical about the vaccine, you've got the sort of hardcore anti-vaxxers as a part of that. And to a degree, I don't think there's much government or anyone else is going to do to change their minds. But you have a lot of other people who are still able to be convinced. And when you look at sort of the world of public diplomacy, you always talk about the fence sitters. I mean, that's your target audience who really just need good information to make the right choices. So there's clearly just got to be a doubling of efforts to reach the people who are still unsure, but who could be convinced by this. But again, to talk about like the more aggressive countering some of the malinformation, it's really difficult because it's easy enough for governments or the social media companies to say, hey, I mean, if it's health misinformation or disinformation that is explicitly saying the Pfizer vaccine is going to kill you and that's got this, they can take it down, they can label it, but they are a bit tied in knots when it's you know, the example I gave. People died in a nursing home after receiving the vaccine. Yes, it's unrelated. Somewhere in this RT article, they'll probably even say it's unrelated. But, uh, but that's that's a challenge. And I think part of it is just getting people to be savvier about information and understanding the need for context and triangulating their sources and actually reading an entire article and not a headline and tweet. But it's difficult. But I think at this point, uh, you know, I saw an article describe it as like we need to get in the sort of hand to hand combat and really start outreach at, at like the neighborhood individual level uh, to try to still get those who are unsure, skeptical, but still are able to be convinced to take it. So that was our show for today. If you want to hear more stories about vaccine hesitancy, you can look up the inoculation wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter, Inoculated. The link is in the show notes. You can follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Our reporting is supported by journalismfund.eu, Media Lab Bayern, and Topfish Stiftung. Bye for now.